Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. This is episode 146, and I'm excited to bring back uh, a regular, so to speak, Dr. Graham Close, Professor Graham Close. How are you doing, Graham? I'm doing wonderful. Do I get a medal for my third or fourth time? Or no, you're obviously, too, as, you're obviously desperate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look Graham you and I have known each other oh, seven years or something now and you've, you've you know you've you've contributed a number of times to our to our podcast here on a number of different topics and areas including the very first ever podcast that we did with uh, you and, and James Morton and uh, a topic came up of late that, that actually you volunteered uh, to, to have a chat with me about that is indeed an incredibly interesting area, um, which we'll come to in a minute. And it's related to something that I come up with quite a lot, which is not only how exciting sport and exercise nutrition has started to become, but it's, it's almost addictive, a bit potentially like this, this topic that we're going to get into. That will be CBD or cannabidiol. And I'm, I'm going to have you do all the pronunciations and, and so on. But this represents, you know, one of now many options that sports nutritionists and or consumers of sports nutrition products might be tempted to use. And I understand it's, it's sort of a, a controversial area for a number of reasons, which we'll you know, expand upon. But before we, we get into this topic with us, just, just remind us, it shouldn't be necessary, but let's do this anyway, about who you are and what you're up to, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Yeah. So as you say, I'm Professor Graham Close. I'm a Professor of Human Physiology at Liverpool John Moores University, where I've been there. Well, I started my, my PhD there many years ago, and I've been a, a lecturer, uh, etc., there for the last decade. And then on top of that, I'm currently the expert nutrition consultant to England Rugby, the head of performance nutrition for the European Tour. My foot in a, a number of other camps as well when it comes to sport nutrition. I, I also currently the deputy chair of the Sport and Exercise and Nutrition Register. Uh, and a, a real advocate of, you know, promoting the register and driving the standards of, uh, of sport nutrition in, in the UK and throughout. Yeah, and well, sort of on that point, actually, I guess we've got terms that fly around a lot, like evidence-based, or a phrase I prefer, which is evidence-informed. And of course, as a both as a researcher, as a, an educator, a, a sort of a profession leader, so to speak. You know, you're very much invested in in not only the contribution of knowledge that goes into that sort of evidence-based pathway, but also making sure that that information is being appropriately translated and applied appropriately into practice, but also by the right kinds of people. So there's quite a lot of hats, clearly, you've got on there. But that's why I think, again, that makes this conversation we're about to have quite quite an important one because you are able to look at this topic from the perspective of the evidence, but also from what is appropriate for supporting performance, the needs of, of the athletes themselves. You've actually were a former professional athlete yourself, a rugby league player. This conversation will lend itself well to as well. But of course, the controversies aren't just about being a controversy, this could be career-ending stuff for some people if they don't understand this appropriately. So I guess we should kick this conversation off, Graham, with, I just mentioned cannabidiol or CBD. These are terms that 
people will now have heard of. They may not know a lot about them, or they might be thinking cannabis or marijuana, or maybe they've heard a little bit in the press about some of the medical aspects of this, which, which are to a certain extent relevant to this conversation. But given all the work that you've been doing over the years in performance nutrition, how on earth did you get into this particular area of research? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it goes back to what you were just saying a few minutes ago about working in the applied world and being an academic researcher and trying to combine the two worlds. And I won't mention his name, but within him, uh, one of the teams I was working and around about 2016 this was one of my players asked me about CBD cannabis oil and uh, I'd, nev- I'd never heard of it I'd, you know and I was so it kind of caught me off guard really and I went and did some research and, and what I find out is that it's from a cannabis plant and you're like whoa okay uh, a, bit, a bit a bit nervous here but it was an easy conversation back in 2016 Lauren because it was on the wider prohibited list so it was an easy conversation, but look, you know, I've looked into it. There may be some loose evidence around pain relief, sleep, etc. But it's prohibited by WADA. That's the end of the conversation. Jump forward to 2018, and you know, we can maybe discuss this and discuss the wisdom of it. WADA decide to remove it from the ban list, so CBD is no no longer prohibited. Now it's a different conversation because up to then, the conversation was leave it alone. Now my conversation is, I'm going to have to learn a bit more about this because being an academic practitioner, I don't like not knowing much about things. And that's probably started a two or three year journey for me now, whereby I've spent a lot of time reading and researching and we've had one paper published on it. I'm just about to submit my, my second paper on, on CBD. And, and I think it is an exciting area. I think it's an exciting area because the potential of what it can do but as we'll touch on today it's also such a risky or controversial area because even though cbd isn't banned let's get into this the cbd is one of maybe 110 cannabinoids in the cannabis plant so you get the cannabis plant and there's numerous cannabinoids the two best known cbd and thc tetrahydrocannabinol And it's a THC that's a psychoactive substance or what some people would call the good stuff. Mm. So what people have realized is that when you can take out the CBD, there appears to be some medical benefits of this. And there is actually two now prescribed, regulated CBD um, products that you can get on prescription for very specific reasons. One to treat epilepsy, the other one that's a CBD with THC combination that is allowed to treat some of the um, spasticity that you get with various disease states. So if you can take the THC out and leave us with CBD, in theory, we've got something that athletes can take, and I'm saying in theory, because CBD isn't prohibited. The, The kicker here is that all the other cannabinoids are still prohibited by WADA. Now, THC is a threshold substance, which means that anything over 150 nanograms per mil in your urine will give a positive test. All the other cannabinoids are prohibited in any concentration. And because we're getting CBD from the cannabis plant, 
the chances ever is going to be trace amounts of not only THC, but the other things in there. And if we don't know exactly what is in that bottle, even though we may think we're taking a CBD solution, there's a chance we're putting things into our body that are prohibited by WADA, and then we've got the consequences that come with it. Yeah, it's interesting because you use, I mean, you use the word consequence, which I think is an important word. I say this all the time on the podcast. You know, the, the thing we have to remember is, although we're talking about sports nutrition or sport and exercise nutrition, we might use words like performance and so on, or training adaptations, we're still dealing with human beings. And human beings have needs that go beyond just their sport. Now, some of those needs, there may be some crossover, like in rugby, and we'll get into that, where you know the impact that's involved you know, has lasting effects that goes well beyond the game, you know, might affect them on days off in certain ways that they feel they need to do something about that. Um, and I'll let you explain that further. But the consequences are are very interesting because as you have pointed out that unless it's specifically banned it's just black and white you can't go there those consequences take on a i guess a level of of hierarchy in someone's mind don't they and you know they don't think right i'm going to take it instant death is involved like you might with certain poisons or, or or whatever but when we think about supplements we generally consider them to be uh fairly innocuous in terms of, you know, a threat to life or a threat to health. And of course, we are as performance nutritionists, particularly working with elite athletes, you know, we're very aware of the potential for contamination. But from a consumer's perspective, they're not, they're not focused on that so much, are they? I think it's worth just quickly going into that because there's a, there's a difference between what we're looking at as practitioners or researchers and what the consumer is looking at. Yeah, and with CBD as well, Lauren, there's still arguments from people much higher up the food chain, you know, right up to government level of what it actually is. So in certain situations, it's a medicine. So the two that I mentioned, uh, Sativex and Epidiolex, without doubt, medical under a medical license and need to be prescribed and dealt with under that way. Then the question is, is it a food or is it a supplement? Now, the EU have decided at the moment, and it could change its mind, but it's what's called a novel food. And because of that, it's going to have to go through a novel foods application, which is long and complex. And, and by, I think it's March of next year, all companies who want to sell CBD within Europe will have to have submitted the novel foods application. I, I did read today that the EU are even thinking of changing their mind on that one. So this is how quick this landscape is changing yeah. and reclassifying it as an illicit substance. Mm. I believe the UK aren't doing that, and the UK are pushing on with this novel food application. Uh, I, I guess the reason that's important is that to get a novel food license, you need to have done the things that you're talking about where you're evidencing the safety and the quality of it. There was a paper that came out only this year by Gurley et al. in uh, the Journal of dietary supplements, and they looked at 25 CBD products that you could buy in America. And of the 25, only three of them were within 20% of what it said on the label. Hmm. 15, well, 15 of, it, uh, of them were well below the, for the amount of CBD, and some of them having absolutely negligible CBD in there. Two exceeded the claims by uh, as much as 50%, which is a, a worry when we talk about the safety side of it. And three of the 25 were above the legal limit 
of THC. So three of them were actually an illegal product you can find. Four of them, from what I remember, actually had adulterated synthetic cannabinoids in there, which can be really dangerous to health. So you're buying this thinking, okay, it's just a CBD product. We've no idea what is in there. We don't know enough yet, I don't think, about the safety of it. We don't know enough about the dose. And we probably, with a lot of products, can't trust that what it's saying on the label is actually in there if research like this is to be believed. Yeah. And I guess what makes this so much worse is the fact that there is huge amounts of information about, well, supplements generally. A lot of it, it just isn't, let's be kind and say, a lot of it's just inaccurate. This is one area which, of course, is sort of open license for people, you know, well, they're trying to make a buck, aren't they? You've got businesses trying to sell products, so on and so forth. But, you know, with the the internet, with the, uh, you know, it's very easy now for an individual to do their own research, so to speak, but they're not necessarily trained in how to research and differentiate quality from flawed information, which is a big problem here, isn't it? Lauren, that's a, that's a massive, important point, And I'm glad you took me down that route. I just did a Google search where I typed in CBD and athletes just to see what is coming up. And the first, very first step, the first thing I should say is in, in 0.48 seconds, you get 1.7 million hits. So there's a lot of reading that can be done here. But the very first hit you get is entitled Six Benefits of CBD for Athletes. And it says, number one, relieves pain. Number two, it's an alternative to non-steroidals. Three, it's a good alternative to opioids. Four, it's going to reduce inflammation. Five, it'll settle your gut. And six, it's going to improve your sleep quality. So it's probably no wonder that there's a product here that isn't prohibited by WADA. There is multiple claims put on it. And these are things that many athletes are looking for. They're looking for improved pain management. They're looking for improved sleep. I found another article on a – it was on a ski and snowboarding website. Hmm. And it was talking about top tips to recover from ski and snowboard. Number one, it said, unfortunately, the first solution would be painkillers. Number two was an ice pack. And number three was CBD oil. Really? Wow. So in such a short period of time, there is stuff putting it right up there alongside standard painkillers and ice packs in in first-line treatment for athletic pain and soreness. So it is no wonder that athletes are confused. But the paper we recently published where we showed that 26% of elite rugby players have either used it or are currently using it. The biggest take-home message for me in that paper is where they were getting their information from. And what we reported in that paper is that almost 80% of the athletes got the information off the internet with as little as 15% going to a nutritionist or dietitian. And about 60, 70%, something around that mark, was getting the information from another teammate. So there's a wealth of misinformation out there. There's loads of caveats that you need to understand with CBD. Far more complicated, I would say, than any other supplement. Yet athletes are going to the internet or the teammate to get the information rather than qualified support. So I want to hang out in this little area for a bit because this, I feel is a really interesting one because and I if I look at this through the lens of a practitioner which of course I've been for many years you, you know you you would like to think that okay look I 
you know, you've gone to certain lengths to become trained, educated, you're, for example, center registered, you ticked all those boxes. You're in a, you know, an environment like a professional team where the team may even have some team wide, you know, policy on no supplements, et cetera, to be used or recommended that, you know, haven't been, you know, tested for banned substances, haven't been approved by the team doctor, so on and so forth. And, you know, we're talking about very well qualified, very experienced members of the team. And yet the athletes are still taking these things. Is the answer they just don't respect the practitioner, which may or may not be a case? They're just not listening to them because the practitioner themselves may not have made enough of an effort to communicate to their, to their team, to their audience. And perhaps they're only in once a week, which is common, or once every other week. And you know, having a conversation with 20, 30, 40 people can be pretty difficult. You know. Or is something else at play there where trying to fight against the tide, so to speak, or the, you know, speak louder than the noise that exists when the athletes are away from the club and they're on social media, their buddies, their partners, or, or whatever? Where do you feel the block is? What, what's, the, what's the problem there in this regard? Since we, you know, you've already made it clear where we're at in terms of what we know and don't know, so to speak. Why, is, why does the problem still exist, like you found in your research? Right, let's get a bit controversial. We've been a bit polite. Go for it. You know yeah. me. Let's get into this. <laughs> Unleash. <laughs> Unleash. There's multiple reasons. But the first one is, and it kind of came up a little bit in this research study, the first one we did, you know, we, we invited 30 teams to take part. We got 25, which was great. So we got a real good response. But the main reasons why the ones who didn't take part didn't take part was that the gatekeeper to them clubs said, we've told the athletes not to take CBD. Asking them ever taking it will just confuse them. So you're not even asking them. So there's definitely a head in the sand mentality because I know for a fact that some of them teams, you know, from people I've spoken within are taking CBD mm. despite what they're being told. I've said a few times that Dr. No doesn't just die in James Bond films. Do you know what I mean? If we come along and one of the problems, you know, I remember Kev Carell at EIS saying that he faced this when he first got the job as head of uh, nutrition is that people see nutritionists as being Dr. No, you can't do this, you can't do that. You know, you can't eat this, you can't do, you know, lots of what you can't do. And you've got to remember, athletes are looking for things that they can do. It's the easiest thing in the world to keep putting blocks in place. The hardest part of our job is being innovative and creative. And if you think about it, this is something now which is on in its infancy. You know, it's only been off the water prohibited two years. You can count on one hand the number of athlete-based papers on this stuff. We're probably talking 10 to 15 years to get an evidence base. Most of our athletes' careers will be over then. Mm. You know, if we look in my paper that we put out recently, the interesting thing was when we looked at the, it was about 15% of 18 to 23-year-olds using it. 30% of 23 to 28-year-olds and over 40% of 28 to 33-year-olds. So it's them at the back end of the careers who are looking for some pain relief because of probably a career of abuse on the body of physical collisions. You know, some of these have got one or two years left in the career. They're not going to wait 10 years for an RCT. And that's the hardest part of my job is that 
I've got to be innovative. You know, I've got to come up with new and exciting areas. But at the same time, I'm evidence-based and we've got to have that, that science. So I guess somewhere there is a conversation and sometimes we probably do need to be ahead of that RCT, especially it's going to be 10 or 15 years before there's a meta-analysis out on here, which is like our gold standard evidence. What we can't do, however, is jump in at where we are, I would say no, when we don't know the safety and we don't know the dosing and we don't know what levels will cause a potential problem for an athlete. So there's somewhere between where we are now and where we need to be. And I think at the moment, some athletes are jumping in with both feet because they're not understanding the, the genuine concerns. But likewise, I think there's a lot of people in my world who are sticking their head in the sand and hoping it will go away. Yeah. Uh, and trust me, this will not go away. And one of the reasons it won't go away is I was doing a little bit of a research the other day. And I'm trying to remember the, the exact figure, but apparently today it's a $9.3 billion industry predicted to hit $20 billion by 2024. Wow. So if something has got that amount of money behind it, yeah. and let's be honest, if it does prove to be effective for pain relief, given that we know there's a big problem in sport where a lot of athletes do become addicted to opiate-based painkillers, we know that chronic use of NSAIDs can have quite negative effects on the stomach and ulcers and things like that. If the research comes out and says that maybe it can be beneficial for pain relief, then actually, just because it comes from the cannabis plant, should we not be a little bit more open-minded and be willing to do that research? I think it's probably a decent time to just to mention where, you know, the difference between the various strains of cannabis. You know, so for example, in, in Europe and the UK, CBD has to come from the hemp plant. And the hemp is, there's two major strains of, of cannabis. There's a sativa and the indica. The indica is what's purely grown for the good stuff. And I'm doing the little inverted comments. Yeah. I shouldn't really call it good stuff. I'll get in trouble here. But you know what I mean. It, that's what's grown for the illicit purposes and um, what you'd get in a lot of trouble if it was growing in the loft of your house. Yeah. And that's the only real reason that cannabis indica is grown. Now, cannabis sativa is, is grown for a variety of reasons. And the L strain, when it's been proven to have less than 0.3% THC in it, so a really small amount of THC, then it can be classed as hemp. And hemp, you'll be using it on a day, daily basis. It, it's everywhere in, 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 uh, in society. It, you know, it, it's used for in food stuff, you know, in salads, in food supplements, in margarines, in vitamins, in cooking oils. There's industrial use of it. It's used in soaps and bath gels. Obviously, we mentioned the medicines that it's used in. It's used in building materials, in insulation. It's used in textiles, in clothing. So it's used in so many different, it so, seems like such a valuable plant, the hemp plant. So we're not talking about marijuana, which is the indica strain, which is used for illicit purposes. We're talking about the sativa L strain that is then classed as hemp, and it's used that way. Perhaps if this bad boy had a name change. Yeah, you know, I think... Well, if you were his PA, you'd, you'd tell him change his name, wouldn't you? You'd say, differentiate from that nasty marijuana and cannabis and maybe just call yourself Sativa. 
but marijuana sounds a little bit more exciting than sativa. Sativa sounds like some sort of yeast infection. <laughs> I'm not sure. uh, But uh, look, I guess this comes back to something that I think both as consumers and as practitioners, we need to weigh up sort of the cost of benefits of all this, don't we? And as you rightly say, this is a gray area, particularly if the, the appropriate governing agencies, bodies and so on are like, you know, this isn't necessarily banned. We've got to understand what it is that we're dealing with. Hence, why it would help if there was a name change. And, yeah. and I guess it's made worse, Graham, where you can buy this stuff from a lot of different places where they will try and dress it up as some unique formula, won't they? Where they'll give it some proprietary you know, name. Where it's a set of proprietary ingredients. Maybe we just you know, quickly focus on that because people, you know, yes, the option is to not take it, but if you are going to take it and you can you know, your decision-making process leads you to the, you know, the decision to take it. What, you know, presumably there's a few things you've got to, you've got to clear first, which includes where the hell do you even get this? I don't mean brand. Yeah. To be fair, I think, I don't think WADA have thought it through enough what we have done. And right. I said we're going to be controversial. Let's throw it out that way. Mm. Because we've removed it, but since then, all you're getting from the likes of You Counted Open are warning statements about the dangers of it. So I still can't really get my head around why it was ever removed. I guess the argument is it's not performance enhancing, it's not dangerous to health, and it's not illegal. So, you know, from, a, from that perspective. The, the issue is that it's just created more confusion than, than what it was before. It was quite easy before. It's banned, it's done. And actually, since it's been removed, we have had, you know, some cases and two that spring to mind is the US ski athlete, Devin Logan who accepted a, a ban for, for taking CBD. And then more recently, there was a US triathlete, Lauren Goss, who I think that was a, a CBD balm she was using for muscle recovery. Now, whether that is because it was contaminated with higher amounts, or we, we don't know, but what we do know is that there's certainly two cases now where people have accepted sanctions for taking a CBD oil there's lots of questions that we don't know. So, for example, I'm becoming quite interested in from my world of vitamin D, but there's some research that suggests because it's stored in fat tissue, when you mobilize fat tissue, you can actually sequester it and your vitamin D concentrations increase. And I've seen that suggestion being the case for CBD, where actually the THC that you take within the CBD, the small amount, maybe has a potential to accumulate within fat tissue. And if you do a long, steady state of exercise where you've got an increased rate of lipolysis, in theory, you could then actually release a large amount of THC, in theory. We don't know that. So that's one potential. The other thing is we just don't know if it accumulates anyway. And we also don't know when it says, as I said before, that it's going to have the right amount in. We just aren't aren't confident. So that's the first part. Of your question. The second part is where do you get it from? Well, actually, most shops are now selling it. And I know this is an audio, but I'm sat with a bottle of stuff in front of me because I'm since publishing papers, mm. various companies are sending me their one to have a look at and you know, wanting to do it the right way and wanting me to do to do research on it. So you can buy it the CBD in, in certainly UK in many health food shops. In the UK, for it to be allowed to be sold, 
it has to have less than one milligram of THC in the final bottle. You hear people say it has to have less than 0.2%. That's a bit of a myth. People have misunderstood the evidence. It has to have less than a milligram of THC in the final bottle, and it mustn't be easy to extract the THC from it. So when you buy it in a shop, you should just be buying it, the CBD, with small amounts of THC, less than, less than a milligram. The other thing to point out is that the, the evidence that's looked at what's called full-spectrum CBD that's got all the other cannabinoids in, say that one of the ways that it works is by interaction of all the other cannabinoids. So then really small amounts are important. And what we're trying to do from an athletic perspective is strip it back to just CBD and take out all the other, even small amounts of the other cannabinoids. And as far as I can see, there's no evidence in the literature that that would be effective. So we don't know at the moment, even if the type of products being sold have got any efficacy. So there's so many unknowns at the moment. My advice is still to athletes, we probably need to leave this one alone. But my advice to academics like me is, it's not going away and it's such an exciting area of research. You know, anything that's got the potential to have so many effects. Bear in mind, the body has its own endocannabinoid system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's maybe a nice little move here. But the way that the body's endocannabinoid system was discovered was by looking at where THC in marijuana was affecting. And what it found is that we've got these CB1 and CB2 receptors, CB1 mainly in the brain, CB2 throughout the body in multiple cells. And THC was binding to these CB1 receptors and having multiple effects. The scientists then start to say, actually, why would a body have receptors for the odd chance you're going to smoke an illicit plant? (laughs) And then what you find is that the body actually does have its own endocannabinoids, so its own production of cannabinoids that bind to these receptors, the two ones being uh, anandamide, which is AEA, and 2-arachidinol-glycerol, or 2-AG. So we've got our own endocannabinoids that the body will produce in certain times, one to do with pain effects. A fascinating role of the endocannabinoids, Lauren, and I really enjoyed reading this paper, was a study in rats where when you knock out the CB1 receptor, then what you do is you give the rat the old Pavlovian experiment where you give it a stimulus of pain and send a bell. And you do that for a while. Then eventually when you send the bell, it will respond thinking it's pain. Okay? If you keep ringing the bell without pain, eventually the rat forgets that painful stimulus. Mm. In the CB1 knockout mice, they never forget it. So one thing that we're saying that the endocannabinoid system may be crucial in is almost putting out of your mind previous traumatic events. And I've seen people looking at the endocannabinoid system and potential role of other cannabinoids for post-traumatic stress. So... And we know that the, these receptors are really important in pain management. So that's why I think it's exciting. We've got an endocannabinoid system that seems to affect everything from the immune system all the way to thinking. And potentially, we've now got supplements that could maybe help this system. For me, it is exciting. It's just too soon at the moment for athletes. I'm, I'm pleased you said that because th- this is something I wanted to just quickly get into, which is particularly relevant given it's you. We did a recent 
ish podcast about paper to podium, you know, not just how good is the science or the evidence, but how actually translatable is that into a specific context. So in this case, we're talking about performance athletes in particular. When we're talking about CBD, there's clearly lots of evidence out there one way or the other. You know, where is that evidence? If we were to contextualize that evidence, you know, who who's it done on or what is it done on? And therefore, from your perspective, you know, how translatable is that right now into a sport and exercise nutrition, you know, environment where either someone like me as a practitioner working with athletes or teams and or a consumer such as our athlete should weigh up mm. the strength of the evidence and the relevance of that in their my favorite as you know, I'm into context and, you know, my way of my catchphrase for that is you can, but should you? Yeah. You know, so you can, but should you? Graham? So the short answer is limited and no, but I'll give you the longer answer because okay. <laughs> I'm going to say you're not paying me for the short answer, but you're just not paying me. So uh, <laughs> we'll just deal yeah. with it that way. In a clinical setting, there is, I'll keep going back to it, something like Epidiolex, which is used to treat Dravet syndrome, which is, with multiple epilepsies a day, the evidence seems pretty strong. However, that will cost you £32,500 per year to take Epidiolex in the right amounts. Wow. The reason, one of the reasons for that is that I think, I should know this, but, but the dose is around about 500 milligrams of Epidiolex. To put that into some kind of perspective, what we're seeing being sold over the counter as a sport product is about eight milligrams. Mm. So 500 milligrams in this situation, eight in that. And the FSA have said at the moment, but until further research is done, they advise against any more than 70 milligrams in a day. So there's a huge issue, and people aren't talking about this enough, but the dosing issue. So people are using clinical research and saying, yeah, it's on CBD, and then using that. And, and it's like we know that a gram of paracetamol works I'm not going to sell a tablet selling a milligram. For it to work, I need a gram of the stuff. So there's, there's maybe a big issue with dosing here. I did some back of a fag packet maths. And if I wanted to give CBD oil in the dose where the literature suggests it may be effective to an England rugby squad, for example, it would cost me three quarters of a million pound per year. So I'm not... Yeah. Sure, there's enough evidence out there yet no. for me to invest three quarters of a million pound in this stuff. There, there does appear to be a reasonable evidence base on things like CBD in pain management in people with MS, for example, uh, and quite a few clinical situations. I, I said you can count on one hand. I think you can count on one finger the amount of studies from an athletic perspective. So we've done one where I've said where we've looked at the prevalence, and I'm just about to try and submit one where we've tried to look at DOMS, a classic DOMS study. And we only used the, what it says on a bottle, so a really small dose. And we found no effect on anything, sleep, muscle soreness, or anything like that. Interestingly, in my biggest study where we asked all the athletes about the reported benefit, now obviously there's going to be a big placebo effect here, Despite 80% reporting that they took it for pain relief, only 15, I think it was 15%, said they felt a benefit on pain relief. So in the doses we're taking, I'm not convinced this is an effective pain relief. 
interestingly, about 40% said it helped them with sleep. Now, whether that is a placebo effect, that we know a lot of athletes struggle to sleep, and the thought of having something related to the cannabis plant pre-bed helps sleep, who knows? We need some placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trials on that one. But I certainly think in the doses being given, at the moment I'm very dubious about whether it's going to have any effect from a pain management in the doses that we're given. And also, I've recently been reading, but maybe it needs to be a loading phase as well of maybe three, four, five weeks. Long answer to a short question, evidence, weak, and not translatable to athletes at the moment. Yeah. Back to our previous conversation, I guess that's maybe why, you know, cannabidiol has some value in the placebo arena because the association we have with the name and some of its perceived benefits, you know, by its uh, association with cannabis, et cetera, could, could be of interest, couldn't it? Whereas sativa, you know, I guess is maybe less, less convincing. And for those, because we're not recording the video here, I can tell you now that Graham's just taken a dose. <laughs> He's just taken a hit. <laughs> what, what I've actually done is just reminded myself yeah. of the smell. Was it actually taking a dose? But that's <laughs> placebo. There is quite um, I was going to try and describe the smell and taste of it, but it will certainly help with a placebo because it's not the nicest tasting of stuff. Yeah. And there certainly is a distinct smell of it. So we all know the power of placebo. There's a reason why if I was to do this study on sleep, I would have to have a placebo group. Mm. So, you know, the anecdotal reports are coming back from players that are finding it a benefit. We, we do need to still take that with a pinch of salt. But like I said before, there certainly is enough stuff and there's even small clinical trials now that are looking at pain and sleep and showing some some benefits. Now, most of these are when you've got THC in there as well with that, what we call that entourage effect. But we certainly need to look at it because like I keep saying, that if it can help with pain and sleep and it's, you know, it's something we've grabbed from a plant where the other thing I've read and people argue, but it, for me, it reads like there is a reasonably solid safety profile on the stuff, mm. you know, probably a lot safer than many other medications currently out there. It needs some research. What is the, since you've sort of delved into this, I mean, what what is the anti-doping risk here? I mean, let's be absolutely clear what the what the risks are. Okay. Thanks, Lauren. So that was a bit controversial. I'm going to try and answer this in the, in the least controversial way possible. If it comes from the hemp plant, and you know for sure it's from a hemp plant, which means it has to have less than either 0.2 or 0.3% THC in it, depending on what, uh, what country you're in. But if it comes from a hemp plant and it's been extracted properly and you've got all the evidence around that, my reading is the chance of getting 150 nanograms per mil of THC in urine is negligible. To put that into any context, some countries are down at 5 nanograms per mil to test you in the workplace, have you been smoking illicit substances and coming into work in, in an unfit state. And, and people are looking at that concentration to try and pick it up. It used to be 50 nanograms per mil with water and we've increased it to 150. So the, the if that I said at the beginning, if it's from hemp, 
the chance of hitting a THC concentration of 150 nanograms per mil, in my understanding, and this isn't advising anyone to jump out there and say, Graham said this, so go and do it. But my understanding is that that would then be negligible. What I don't understand, and I don't know if anyone does, you know, I don't know how many of the cannabinoids WADA actually test for. I'd be very surprised if they tested for all 110 or however, maybe 130 now, cannabinoids. We know that all the others are prohibited in even small quantities. And I don't know, and nobody knows, because this is a study I want to do, if taking a CBD product from a hemp plant, what it does to the whole range of, of cannabinoids. But if you were saying, you know, in terms of the, the THC, and you were to take it from the hemp plant, questionable. Then you've asked the question, then why have some athletes failed? This is where you get controversial, isn't it? And making sure I don't move into any slanderous. The, the obvious explanation is that it's been contaminated. It's not from the hemp plant. And the study that I told you earlier about where it said many had other substances in it and also in much different concentrations, it's probably related to that. So that's the girly paper where they showed that only three of the 25 label match the claim. What we can never rule out, and I would never make any accusation, but you can never rule out, is it's a far better story to tell WADA that you've had a CBD contaminated issue than you have smoked a spliff. Yeah. Let's be honest. And, and, and I've said this a lot about the amount of claims of contaminated supplements. And yes, we do know that that is a problem. I, I do not for one minute believe that everybody who failed a doping test, as far as I know in the UK, there's only ever two or three athletes who have ever said they took an illicit substance, uh, performance-enhancing substance. All the others took a supplement. I don't believe there's only ever been three people caught taking a banned drug and all of them were contaminated supplements. It's just an easier and less damaging story for one's reputation. And I do think as sport nutritionist, and you know, that's who I'm talking to a lot here. You know, a lot of your your listeners are people working in that world. And you know, and if we were to say, yeah, go ahead, take the CBD and be fail a, a doping test, there is always a chance that that athlete may have done something he shouldn't have done, or she have done something she shouldn't have done, and blames it on the CBD, and then the blame is back on our doorstep for not doing due diligence. Yeah. Uh, and when it comes to due diligence. What we know, and we, we all know about informed sport and, you know, the importance of batch testing. Informed sport at the moment will not test any CBD or any hemp-based product. So we can't get an informed sport certificate on it. There are other companies such as BSCG, the Banned Substance Control Group, that will, and they'll give you a hemp-certified product. But that still is saying that it's below a certain threshold. And we still, nobody can hand on heart say if taking that in high doses over a prolonged time will be a problem. So at the moment, I don't think we can do due diligence. So in terms of giving our advice to the athletes, we have to, at the moment, in my opinion, urge on the side of caution. Yeah, and I, I guess another angle here as well is, look, we've acknowledged potential strengths and limitations to this we've acknowledged 
athletes aren't just athletes, they're human beings. There's going to be more than one reason they might take this. You've mentioned anecdote. The power of anecdote is pretty powerful. But also, we need to bear in mind that their desire to take this, you know, is maybe based perhaps more on the on what is its urban legend as opposed to the actual real effects. And there are other ways of tackling, you know, those things that they're taking CBD or wanting to take CBD for, you know, whether it's sleep or stress or anxiety or pain. There are, of course, other solutions for those problems. I mean, if I was in your consulting room or if you were standing in front of of athletes and we were considering that as an option, I mean, what, how would you tackle that perspective? Yeah, I recently did a, an internal webinar for the EIS. And that was basically, Laura, my final slide. Right. Okay. And my final slide, if I remember, it was something on the lines of, number one, have the conversation because it's not going away. And be proud of yourself that the athlete trusts you enough to have the conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Because you're, if your athlete's asking you about it, you're in a small minority. You know, you're in the 15%. So I think we need to encourage our athletes to have these conversations. That's why I go back to that original player who asked me. I hope he's listening to this, and I should have asked him, can I name him? Because it keeps me on my toes. Because he's so well-read. And by the way, it's in a position that you wouldn't think he should be. And it's always on top of the literature. And he's not asking about dodgy stuff. He'll have read something that I've not heard of before. And you're like, wow, okay, I've not heard of that one. I need to. So your athletes are speaking about it. You know, one of the questions we asked, you know, who's heard of CBD? And it was almost 100%. So your athletes are speaking about it. Get your head out of the sand. We have to have a conversation. Yeah. The second point, then, is use that conversation to explain the anti-doping risks Mm. because they are pretty clear. And when I've explained them to intelligent athletes, not one of them have then wanted to say, right, I I think it's worth it, okay? They're not stupid. You know, they're maybe not aware, because WADA is not banned by WADA, they maybe don't understand all the other connotations that we've just spent the last hour discussing. The third thing is explain the safety concerns. So explain to them that in a lot of these products, we we don't know what amount is safe. We we have seen that dangerous compounds are popping up in them. So we don't even know how safe it is. I would then explain the lack of evidence in as much as, yes, 500 milligrams is licensed. We can't give anywhere near that. If you were going to take that, be prepared to spend north of £30,000 a year, and we still don't know if it's going to help you. That will probably stop at the conversation at that point. Mm. Athletes don't like spending that much money. Um, I would explain the difference between medical and non-medical for that dosing, and also the entourage effect. But actually, most of the literature that shows that it works is when the whole cannabinoid spectrum is in there. So taking it down to an isolate, we don't know. Then it's a point that you would say is right, but thanks for speaking to me. You want to help with sleep? Have we tried? And now we can go into, you know, I, I think, you know, you've done some great stuff on, on the you know, on your course and the, the diploma and on podcasts on sleep. So, you know, get back into first principles. If it's muscle soreness, you know, what can we do with a, to help with the muscle soreness, you know, the nutritional strategies and all the other strategies we know that's tried and tested to help with it. And then we've got to wait for the research. And actually, you know, 
volunteer let's get involved in the research it's not going away let let's try and do some good research and see are the athletes ahead of the curve here because as we've spoken before sometimes we are you know in fact a lot of times we are the simple one I always go back to is when I was an undergraduate I was told you didn't need more than 0.8 grams per kg body mass of protein nobody needs more anything else you're wasting and you come forward 20 years and we now know that's nearer to two grams per kg body mass. I got told when I was a young rugby player from one of my friend's dads who was a bodybuilder, you need to be having either eggs at breakfast or these protein shakes. And it was dismissed at my time saying, that's a bodybuilding myth. Come forward 20 years, the bodybuilders had it right. So this could well be a case where they're ahead of the curve. You know, hopefully the science, if it is out there, will catch up the curve. That's exactly why I like the word evidence-informed as opposed to evidence-based because we need to appreciate the evidence. Is, it's just a constant moving thing, isn't it? It's so fluid. Uh, I mean, you're right there with doing all the research and it's just racing by, isn't it? I mean, speaking of which, so what are the future, what's the future hold in this area for you? I mean, you're obviously excited by this. It's, it's fascinating. Where, where do you see things go next? Yeah. Well, first of all, I saw a real good quote off someone, and I can't remember who it was, but he basically was saying that I don't want to be wrong for, as a scientist, I don't want to be wrong for a day longer than I need to be. So I, I never mind changing my mind. You know, what I will always say to people is, to the best of my knowledge, or at the moment, the, you know, the evidence would lead me towards. And I don't mind holding my hand up that in I might have written something and in three years' time, the evidence has changed. That's science. If it didn't, we wouldn't keep doing science. So to the best of my knowledge, this is where I'm at the moment. What I would like to see done is, first of all, attack this from an athlete safety perspective. Mm. So I would like to get research funding, which I'm currently working to try and get my hands on, whereby I take CBD from the hemp plant, so I know it will be under 0.2%, but I haven't, I haven't stripped it all out like some products have tried to do to make it suitable for athletes. So I've still got the entourage effect to some extent. Take it in non-tested athletes, which will be important, in reasonable quantities over a long period of time and measure urinary cannabinoids, blood cannabinoids, and try and get an understanding what it's doing. Are we getting enough? The other thing we also know is first-pass extraction of CBD is very low. So if you take it in tablet form, you're going to get negligible amounts into the system. That's why it's mainly drops under the tongue or even you know people vaping and things like that. But I want to see, can we get it into the system in decent enough quantities and what that does to the whole spectrum? in urine and blood. What I also want to do is some proper pain studies then with a proper dose. And, you know, we've got some real pain experts who I've recently met in John Moores, not from sports science, but from, from from other departments within the university who have done some unbelievable research on pain. Uh, got a great model for inducing it that involves in, infusing saline and so you can quantify pain. And I, I would love to do some real good pain stuff on it. And then, Working with Dan Owens and people like that, you know, colleagues at university, I wouldn't mind sticking it on some cells and looking at regeneration and what does it do for muscle damage. And 
I could work on this for the next 20 years, Lauren. This could be oh, genuinely, you know, I, I listened to your podcast the other week with, um, I know I said Professor Beetroot with Professor Jones. Yeah. <laughs> and Andy Beetroot is he yeah. uh, well known on Twitter. You know, he'd read something, hadn't he, on, uh, on nitrates and thought, go on, we'll have a look. And I cannot, and 20, or whatever, 10 years later, he's still having a look. This could well be the case of me and CBD. I might need to change my name to a... Dr. Cannabis. Maybe go Graham CBD or something on Twitter. But, oh, yeah, no, this Graham could, Sativa. We'll just change your name to Sativa. Sativa, Sativa yeah. close. Exactly. I, I could have been inspired by, uh, by Andy Beetroot there, but <laughs> you just never know, do you? Because right. once I've done the study that shows it doesn't accumulate and it's not going to be a problem from an anti-doping perspective, then it's almost like the shackles are off and let's start seeing if it works. If, however, it is a problem from that perspective, then it's a conversation with WADA whereby, you know, is it worth re-banning it because it will eventually lead to a doping violation? Will we get to the point where WADA just decide to remove all cannabinoids? There's a, b- a big argument to do that. If you think about why should a product be prohibited, it's dangerous to health, it is performance enhancing or it's against the spirit of sport you know you might get to a point where i don't think it is performance enhancing i don't know anyone before a, a game has thought do you know what i'll do to get me fired up i'll smoke a joint I, i've never seen that one coming through so we might get to a point where it, it's not prohibited and so, then who knows well maybe we'll do we'll follow up on this from a cafe in amsterdam graham <laughs> we could have some fun with that one well i guess um look my final Question for you then, because you've summed up brilliantly everything I, I wanted to get into on this topic. You, you'll recall Ron Morn's comment on supplements, which is if it works, it's probably banned. And if it's not banned, then it probably doesn't work, you know, which was absolutely right back in the day. But do you think maybe this is shifting slightly, this concept? Yeah, you've probably seen, I, I asked Asker this. He's not replied to me yet, so I'm wait, still waiting for his reply. I genuinely think it does because... You know, when that came out, you know, I, I get it. And I, I wonder whether, and I need to speak to Ron about this, whether he means specifically as performance enhancing, such as like caffeine, for example. But if we actually look now in our, as you would put it, sport nutritionist toolkit, most of us these days would have vitamin D in there to correct deficiencies in the winter month. A lot of us would have fish oil. A lot of us would have creatine. A lot of us would have caffeine. A lot of us would use protein powders and recovery powders would use nitrate or beetroot juice. If you're working in power, um, repeated sprint sports, you might have sodium bicarb or sodium citrate. We might have taurine. I've probably missed a few there, but we've got to 10 or 12 there, whereby the evidence now is pretty solid that there is a benefit. You know, that's before we get onto things like probiotics, you know, the first sign of a cough or a cold, zinc acetate, vitamin C. So I'd still passionately believe in a food first approach Mm. i do however think certain people have hijacked that term into food only and i am a strong advocate of food first i'm not an advocate in sport nutrition of food only Mm. and it still offends me why a strength and conditioning coach if they come across limb occlusions training where you can occlude a limb train it and you enhance cellular signaling that's well done, you're being innovative. But if a new sport nutritionist says that getting nitrate can help reduce the oxygen cost of exercise, 
there's certain people saying that's cheating, that's performance enhancing. You know, training is performance enhancing. The reason we train our guts off is performance enhancing. So I still massively support food first. I still massively support we need to do due diligence on supplements from safety and everything like that. But I do believe a targeted supplement approach is a crucial tool in a sport nutritionist toolkit. Yeah, no, well, well put, Graham. And I think my sort of addition to that is I think that there's too much temptation to reduce things to some tweetable summary because it is quite complicated, isn't it? And I think that's what's important for us as practitioners. We need to recognize whether we actually know enough about the topic to actually be able to comment on it and or recommend something, which is why things like this podcast are so useful because it helps increase someone's level of knowledge and awareness and understand the strengths and limitations not only of the potential intervention but the strengths and limitations of the practitioner or the consumer's own understanding of that because like you said in your example of you know you look it up on google and you know you see some factual statements about what cbd can do for for people which is far from being factual but of course people read that and they believe it don't they but it can go too far the other way correct and you know you know, I don't know how many times we was all taught in school, the boy who cried wolf. If we permanently come across by saying, no, it doesn't work, can't help, don't work, food first, don't work, eventually these people are going to leave your bubble and take advice from outside it. Yeah. Because, you know, if I was to talk somebody out of creatine, for argument's sake, in a sport where it's effective, some random in a gym tells them to try it, they try it and they feel a benefit, who knows what the next bit of advice from that random imaging may be. Yeah. So we have an obligation, I think, as credible, registered, educated sport nutritionists to make an informed decision. And it's not prohibited. We can get it batch tested, which is risk minimization. And if there's a solid evidence base that it helps, such as creatine, caffeine, bicarb, betralanine, all the other ones that we said before, you know, I didn't mention collagen before, you know, and all the great work from Keith Barr and, you know, what a what initial tool that's now been to our toolbox of helping injured athletes. Would we be doing our job if we didn't consider that because we've taken the moral high ground of food only? I personally don't think we'd be doing a good enough job. So food first, not food only. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Graham, for all your time and effort and the clear passion you have for sport and exercise nutrition, which is infectious in itself, has led many people, including myself, to get really into this whole field. If people want to learn from you and follow you, I know you're not just prolific in terms of your research outputs and you're out there on the speaking circuit a lot and obviously you've contributed a lot to our to our program, which is awesome. You're out there, uh, you're one of the uh, the noises on Twitter and so on as well. So how do people follow you? What's the best way of staying in touch with you and your outputs? Yeah, so, you know, if you wanted to find my, my research, but obviously there's ResearchGate or the university website, you know, if you were just to type my name and Liverpool John Moores University, you'd get to the webpage. On social media, it's close underscore nutrition. I need everyone to follow that because Andy Jones is racing ahead of me uh, and, and ask us well in the distance. So we need to correct that uh, imbalance very quickly. And then I've just started that world of Instagram as well where 
it's just close nutrition on Instagram. There's no underscore. And yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. I don't hide myself. Definitely not. <laughs> well, look, thank you, Graham, once again. It's been a pleasure, as always. I'm looking forward to catching up with you again on this and or other topics, which you've got plenty to, to talk about. If you want to find all the other podcasts that I've done with Graham, you can learn about those at our uh, website, which is www.theiopn.com, the Institute Performance Nutrition, where you can also learn about our other outputs and our practice-focused training program, our Diploma in Performance Nutrition. Thank you all for listening. I, of course, am Lauren Bannock. I look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon. Take care, everyone.